This week, I get to have a conversation with award-winning underwater photographer, Glenn Cowan. Glenn tells how he and his wife shared their journey into scuba diving later on in life than you would imagine. And he also talks about his progression with photography and camera equipment to where he is now. He shares how only after a few exhibitions, he decided to turn his back on his safe electrical engineering job to follow his passion. Glenn also talks about the balancing act between the artistic, technical and business aspects of his work, as well as the background behind his beautiful gallery in the West End of Fremantle and his use of social media to market his work. Glenn is a very private person, so it's an absolute treat to get to know more about the man behind some of the most iconic and beautiful underwater pictures here in Western Australia. So enjoy, Glenn. Hello and welcome back to WA Real. I'm your host, Bryn Edwards. Bringing nature and the art of photography together while also running a business is the focus of today's conversation with award-winning underwater photographer, Glenn Cowan. Glenn, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bryn. Well, thank you for having me. Yep. So one of the questions I always ask my guests because it's called WA Real is the first part about the WA. So you were born and bred in Western Australia, that's correct? Yep, yep. Tell me a bit about growing up in Western Australia and how that shaped you and what it means to be a Western Australian. Yeah, okay, fascinating. Um, I grew up out in Rivervale, Belmont, near the race course there, and probably my most avid memory from childhood was that it was, at that time, mostly like small pastures and things around. That's how old I am. <laughs> and, and I can remember going down to the creeks, uh, nearby and hunting for tadpoles and, and frogs and things like that and and so I think that sort of at a very very young age just gave me a fascination with nature and and, and, and the aquatic mm. realm uh, even in freshwater there in, in, in paddocks it's quite fascinating yeah mm. what else um, do you remember about growing up in Western Australia and I can remember the Meckering earthquake and neighbours running down <laughs> the street to our house for some obscure reason. I don't know why. It was a, it was a state housing commission area. And uh, I can remember them all panicking and being at our house. I have no idea why they came to our house, but that's what everyone did. Um, I can remember the first uh, time we got a colour TV, which was quite fascinating. Um, riding to school... Probably it's it, yeah. It's funny. I don't remember a lot of particular things about my childhood. It's funny. I've often wondered about that. Right. But I did have a very good childhood. I think. Yeah. Mm. Very balanced. Yeah. So um, there's as we'll get into a bit later. You moved from being an electrician to being a photographer. Yes. So there's a real creative spark in what you do. Um, being an underwater photographer compared to that yeah um, and obviously that's your sort of passion and that's what you enjoy where does that creative spark come from in Glenn's I story I have no idea uh, my sister's uh, Jill's very creative she she can paint and sketch and everything just naturally incredibly well As there's no musical slant to it because I'm one of those guys that can't even dance because I can't don't have a beat right um, but English was my favorite subject at school maths and science my worst right um, 
yet through being pushed by my father who was a boiler maker uh, at that stage to get a trade I became an electrical fitter with what was then Sequa which was very close to us over in Belmont anyway and uh, I did reason pretty good at it uh, I was never bad at my job I, I think I was reasonably good but I had to really apply myself technically to do that where compared to other students mm. that or, or other apprentices that could do it naturally very they had brains the size of planets. I mean I ended up in building automation, computer controlled buildings and I was working with guys that did literally have brains the size of planets. They could just look <laughs> at something and, and program it within an hour and, and I would spend three days doing the same thing. I would get it right, but it would take me that long. Yeah. So I think the technical aspect was strived for, but possibly the the love of nature and the creative side, with uh, which which probably only came out in my English, which you wouldn't believe when you talk to me. Um, <laughs> uh, but writing, I'm a little bit better at. I think that's where I, I sort of had more of a, a creative slant. Yeah. Right. So that's where mm. it sort of came from. Hmm. Hmm. I did warn you that I would be a very poor uh, person to talk to because I don't. I I had a flashback this morning when I was um, just washing my face after getting up to one of my childhood reports from primary school, and I remember it was does not communicate well with others. <laughs> well, we'll see where we go this morning. So there are there are obviously two components to what you do. There's the photography, and then there's the ocean. Yes, I would like to just jump into the pardon the pun, the ocean part of it. And what is your, tell me about your relationship with the, the ocean, ocean and how it's evolved. That would be heavily influenced through my father, who was a British submariner during the war, <clears throat> um, was based here at times. Um, and after, <laughs> that's where he met my mother. And after the war, came here as, as a merchant seaman and then obviously married and, and that sort of thing. And so I grew up. <clears throat> My dad had loved nothing better than to bring us down to Fremantle and, and look at the ships. It was his thing. He would do that as many times as you mm. would let him. And we'd do things like... We'd fish a lot, um, which I don't do now because once you start photographing the creatures, it's very hard to kill them. Um, we'd fish a lot, but my dad would always take us to the beach and I can remember um, climbing on his back and holding on to his head while he swam around. It was, this was before I was a strong swimmer. I could swim very well at all. So, yeah, that sort of gave me a passion for for the water. And then we would love nothing better than on an evening sitting there watching Jacques Cousteau mm. documentaries. And, and and that's where I really got the inspiration, I think, for, for underwater. And a fascination with the fact that Dad had gone underwater in submarines. Yeah. Mm. And then how... That, that, that's obviously the genesis of the relationship. Mm. How has it changed and moved over the years? Because, you know, for some people, it's a big, scary place. Um, it's also full of wonder and beauty, obviously, that you capture. But it's, um, it's, it's a unique place in terms of we don't... You've got to want to go into the ocean. A lot of people will happily steer away from it, yeah. look at it, but steer away from it. Yeah, I took up scuba diving quite late in life, in my 30s, uh, I think it was. 
I did learn scuba diving when I was at high school, went to Kudal High School, and, and, and at the time it was probably very um, progressive in, in, in some of the options you could do for physical education and everything from sailing, which I did as well, to um, <coughs> for a public school, it's quite amazing, mm. uh, sailing to, to scuba diving. And I remember um, doing my first ocean dive down at Cottesloe there near the um, small groin. And um, it was back in the days when it wasn't as regulated as it is now. And we had one instructor, one assistant, and I think there was 20 students. And that just wouldn't happen today. Yeah. And I can remember going into the water. It was swelly. It was murky. And... We were all swimming out through the waves, getting pounded by the waves, and then we had to descend, and I just couldn't descend. Uh, my ears just... I couldn't get the equalisation right, and I was probably panicking and hyperventilating. And uh, I can remember the rest of the group were just gone, and, and the visibility was so bad you couldn't see where they were. And, and I just ended up paddling back into shore with all my scuba gear on, first time I've ever done this the tank and everything was huge and heavy and and peeling it off while rolling in 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 the waves and getting pounded by the waves and covered in sand and everything and taking all the gear off and just sitting on the shore and saying well I'm never going to do that again in my life <laughs> so how did you end up coming to it later in your third <clears throat> we were down at uh my wife and I were down at um Eagle Bay uh down in in down south uh, Denmark uh, Dunsborough and Louise was a bit of a beach bunny she loved lying on the beach and being at the beach but going in the water wasn't a big thing yeah and if we went she'd only do it to go into cool off and if we went anywhere near the rocks and weed and creepy things she would freak out and not want to go I would always because I loved snorkeling by that stage, take a mask and snorkel and fill yeah. with me and go snorkeling around the rocks and see what I could see. And I found this small section of weed that was just full of little fish and things. And I, I just came back and I just said, look, come and try my mask and just hold my hand and come and have a look at this. It's just beautiful. It's fascinating. Yeah. And the water was crystal clear. The light was streaming down. Yeah. And we were only in about waist deep water. So I took her out there, put the mask on, um, showed her how to sort of, um, put the spit in so it wouldn't fog up and, and did all that and, and held her hand and she put her head gradually underwater just holding her breath and I'll never forget her eyes when she came out of the water her eyes came out and they were wide as and she was just captivated yeah and so <clears throat> that started a process yes I gradually I decided I would I would teach her how to snorkel so the next stage was the snorkel and, and for people that have never done it, the, the concept of breathing through your mouth while your head's underwater is, is a very hard thing to yeah. overcome. And a lot of people have panic attacks about it. When you have to think about to learn it. it. You have to think about it. Yeah, yeah. So I got her into that um, very, very, very slowly. There's methods you can do that sort of calm people down to do that. And then it, it went from the snorkel to the fins. And the fins were good because it gave her movement. And you've got to remember, this girl could hardly swim. So as soon as she got fins on, um, she was moving quite well. Louise was also the kind of person that... She's one of those people I've never seen in anyone else that's negatively buoyant. If she were to try and float on her back, she would just sink. 
right. like a stone. Right. Okay. Um, it, I've never seen it before in anybody. Yeah. So then the next stage was the wetsuit, and the wetsuit was wonderful because all of a sudden there was this insulation layer for warmth, but also an insulation layer that the weed and horrible yucky things didn't touch it. Yeah. So she loved that. And that was going really well. Uh, then came the weight belt. Yeah. And just a couple of weights so she could duck dive down. Because before the wetsuit, she was able to duck dive down. Yeah. After it, she wasn't. And, and then she started to get really good with that. Um, I was pretty good at making sure she wasn't overly weighted, which can create panic. And I'll never forget one day out at Cottesloe, they're the same place I actually learnt and failed to scuba dive. Right. <clears throat> She duck dived down, and I was watching her from the surface, very proud, um, and, and she's just cruising above the kelp and the rock, and she put her hand down, and as she put her hand down, she didn't realise what she was putting her hand on was an octopus. Oh! <laughs> and they both jumped very, very quickly, uh, the octopus and Louise. So anyway, <laughs> um, after that, long, long story longer, I came home one day from work and said, oh, um, I've signed us up both for a scuba diving course and she just didn't want to do it I think if she she probably would have come close to divorcing me over it she just didn't want to do it <laughs> but we were very lucky we did it at the time with Perth Diving Academy and we did it in the off season what month was it must have been about May I think and uh, we had Leanne who was a very very good female instructor and very patient we had to get Louise to learn to swim, uh, mm. which was very, very difficult. I had to take her down the pool and she had to be able to tread water for a certain amount of time and, and mm. that was hard. But Louise is a bit OCD, fortunately, and once she's made up her mind she's going to do something, she will push herself to beyond pain, beyond anything to do it. Um, so she, she did master that. And I remember the first... Ocean dives, we did at Rottnest. The, the first dive, we were lucky there was only three of us on the course. Mm. And the first dive, we went down. It was lovely visibility. Uh, it was a very calm day. It was those, those beautiful um, autumn days. And as she was coming up the ladder behind the, or the, under the boat, behind the guy, other older guy in the course, he kicked off her mask as he was sort of going up the ladder. She was following too close behind him. She handled it quite well, uh, didn't drown or anything, but came up from that going, oh, I don't know really why anyone gets off on this. You know, it's like, I think she'd made up her mind then that she was going to do the course, but that was it. So then we had the second dive of the day. By then she was more calm and relaxed. And that that was a, just a wonderful dive in, in, a, in a secluded little calm bay quite mm. shallow. There were lionfish, all sorts of tropical fish there, which we get at Rottnest um, uh, with the Lewin Current. And she came up from that and she was hooked. Mm. And so since then, it's just been a love affair with the ocean for both of us. Yeah, personally, you've done mm. together. Mm. It, and I think that is a big help. Yeah. Uh, that it's something we've done together. Uh, I, I get a lot of motiva motivation from Louise, definitely. Right. What have been some of the um, sort of exciting moments and what have been some of the scary <coughs> moments you've had personally in the relationship? Uh, exciting, it's, it, it never really stops really. It's, 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 there's lots of excitement and wonderment. 
probably one of the most wonderful dives I've had have been off Mexico with the giant mantas that are between six and seven metres from wingtip to wingtip. Mm. Uh, a frustration I have is that we can't, we're not in a financial position that we can go and do these um, pseudo expeditions like Sharks with Stowe on our own. We have to do it with other people, other paying yeah. customers and that sort of thing. So I was sharing these giant mantas with all these other people on the boat and all they wanted to do was swim beneath the manta with their arms wide. Yeah. Um, so it was very impossible to get a shot of these mantas. So the best dive of my memory was one where there was a very strong current on this, this site. Um, it's called El Boiler. Mm. Uh, it's a, just a very deep pinnacle coming up out of nowhere. And it's swept by these huge currents. And, and the boat was swinging right off the back on the taut on the on the mooring line because of this current and everyone jumped in i was last because i was doing something with my camera and everyone jumped in even louise with two of our friends that were also on the boat and they swam off and as they're heading towards the pinnacle they could see beyond the pinnacle was all the mantas Mm. as they swam out there and i jumped in i'm following them and and as i'm heading away from the pinnacle uh, towards the mantas i'm going oh hang on the, the current's actually pushing me this way as well Hmm. no I think I'll swim back to the pinnacle the mantas will come back and then what happened was everyone had to be picked up about half a mile away because the current took them away so I had the whole site to myself and the mantas for an hour and it was one of the best dives of my life because they were just coming in within inches of my head and and I was just able to photograph them and photograph them and photograph them so it was wonderful so that's probably one of the most wonderful but there's so many to mention Probably the scariest moment we've had would be our own operator error. Uh, operator. It's something I guess I learnt from my technical days that usually when there's a problem it's 90% of the time operator error and it was our own ability with some equipment. Quite often on these high current dives, and high current dives are very good because current is, is where you tend to get a lot of the nature Right. Happening. It's the busiest places on the reef because uh, current brings food and food uh, brings, brings fish and then that brings bigger fish and, and, and that sort of thing. <clears throat> the problem with doing current dives is that you have to be prepared for them mm. and you have to be able to at least control the situation to a degree. And, and one of the things you need to be able to do when it's a, an extremely strong current and you know that especially if you've been very deep and, and, and you've pushed the limits of your decompression or no decompression time, you have to do your stop before you can come up uh, so that you off-gas and don't get the bends. Yes. <clears throat> now, this was at, at a time, well, I wouldn't say it's at a time when we were being cheap on gear, it's just at a time, I guess, where I probably... Familiarity made me not do something fully and that was buy the quite the right equipment and do do a bit of an ad hoc uh, macgyver type situation where i created the equipment and you have to be able to release a float an air inflated float that you inflate from your your mouthpiece to the surface on a line so that you then hang off that line at five meters drifting out into the blue yeah because it's no reef to 
be next to. You can't yeah. fin against the current because it's too strong. So you're just going to go out into the open sea and they have to know where you are. And your boat knows where you are. Yeah. yeah. So you have to be able to do this. And, and, and we're releasing this line quite deep because you leave the reef. This is at a site in Palau that's very, very um, strong current. And we were releasing this line at about um, 18 metres or so. And the idea is you un, well, you have the the line on a spool, but we didn't. I had it wrapped around the the what we call the safety sausage, the float. And so I unravelled it all so that it would be free to let me put the, the float up. And as I was doing that, I didn't realise that it had floated over Louise's equipment on her buoyancy compensator at BC and, and tangled in her BC inflator and then I put the air in it and it rocketed towards the surface and Thank the second it left my hand I saw it around Louise's BC or her inflator hose and I just reached my fingers in there to try and get it out and at that time it just tightened on my fingers so this thing's trying to head to the surface and we're swimming down to counteract that as hard as we can while at the same time uh, I've got both hands trying to get this off her yeah. inflator. Uh, at the same time it was cutting into my finger on the fingers that were caught in there uh, like uh, a razor. It was just yeah. ripping into it. The other thing I was at the other end of it I had a little lead sinker about an inch 25 millimetres long. Fortunately, that had snagged in the coral, and that was taut. So, but my, this is all happening in, in my mind in slow motion, but it was all happening quite quick. And all I can think of was powering down because we couldn't get to the safety sausage to release the air out of it to stop it racing towards the surface. And all I could think of was us both powering down to, to counteract this. Unfortunately, Louise was switched on enough to do the same thing. And and eventually, I, I got it out. Now, at that time too, we travelled without a diver's knife because I sort of had the attitude of, oh, it's a big macho thing, what do you need a diver's knife for, you know? Yeah. And, and now we carry a knife on our BC everywhere we go around the world. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, fortunately, I managed to just get it off and 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 problem solved but mm. that was a situation where we both could have been dragged to the surface at high speed without any um, decompression decompression uh, if we hadn't breathed out enough we probably would have got a burst lung um yeah who knows what and we'd been down quite a long time so we probably would have got the men so we potentially both could have died so that's probably a, a situation that's more likely to happen to you than a shark attack yeah um, so you have to. Since then, we're we're pretty anal on mm. on, on equipment and mm. how we do things. Yeah, it was a you good just learning. brought up sharks. Though. Is that ever a thought? Mind worry concern? Uh, yeah, I've always had a fear of sharks. It's why it's one of the reasons I actually uh, wanted to scuba dive as well. Was I used to do a lot of windsurfing mm. and and wave skiing when I was a child. I still windsurf, and um, yeah, I've I've always had that fear of sharks. When I was at school, my pet science project was anything to do with sharks. And, to understand and that. So I've read all the books showing all the shark attacks with legs ripped off and all this sort of thing. They're quite gory photos, that sort of thing. Mm. So that and I think the movie Jaws had a lot 
to answer for for my psyche about sharks and <coughs> many other people so yeah that's one of the reasons I, I probably took it up was to face that fear um, yeah but it's it's a balanced fear I mean I still think you have to respect them I still worry a little bit about uh, what's happening with people jumping in with sharks a lot because I think those people that are jumping in and snorkeling with sharks, I think, have taught us wondrous things. They've taught us that that sharks aren't the man-eaters we think we are. Mm. Um, and it makes you wonder whether a lot of the shark attacks that happen take people spearing or hunting or whatever out of the equation um, because that creates a different dynamic. But if in situations where people are just in the water, whether they're snorkeling or scubaing or whatever and there's a shark attack it, or, or even possibly swimming although swimming it's probably harder to to do anything but you can't see what's going on but i think one of the things these these people snorkeling with sharks have have given us is that our behavior can dictate what the situation is so these people wonderfully are jumping in and snorkeling down hmm. and, and and swimming along with great whites and tiger sharks things like that and and, and it's proved that they're not just going to mindlessly chomp you chomp you but it does make me wonder too with the advent of social media that someone will jump in um, doing that mm. thinking it's all going to be wondrous and good like it would be if you were jumping in with a seal or dolphin and then getting themselves into a panic situation so so I think you know that needs to be sort of gauged well mm. but yeah sharks are an amazing creature when you see them underwater they are just beautiful and, and sadly there's only 90% of them left Mm. Uh, so they predict it or, or estimate at the moment. Probably the most majestic shark to me would be the hammerhead, the great hammerhead. There's mm. nothing that swims as beautifully in a sinusoidal as a as a hammerhead. It's just fantastic. Mm. Mm. So tell me about the journey with photography then, and how you went from being from an electrical career into where you are now. I taught myself photography back in when I was about 21, way before I'd met my, my, my wife. I just bought a um, book on 35mm photography. What was that? Uh, don't know. <laughs> I, I don't really know why I did, but I did. And bought a Canon A1 program, which is pretty much what anyone bought those days, is a little 35mm camera to try and teach themselves photography. And just took it from there. Did, did it probably for about three or four years. Sort of got the hang of shutter speed and um, f-stop and, and the various aspects of it and time exposures at night and all that sort of thing. And then got bored with it and dropped it completely and right. take it up. Uh, but when I started scuba diving, and, and it was back in the days when underwater photography wasn't wasn't a lot of people doing it. Not like now; just about everybody has who dives has a camera. Back then, mm. you, you didn't, you, you couldn't afford them. And I bought myself a little plastic. I think it was the one one zero format, which was much smaller than thirty five mil. Right, uh, Minolta. Weathermatic. Is it was it yellow one? Yellow one. I had one of those. Yeah. The flat thing. Yeah. 
And I with the thing you put around yeah, the wrist, yeah, and it was waterproof yeah. to five meters. Yeah, and I routinely, I, one t- of those. I routinely took that down to about eighteen meters in depth. And I remember in Bali, I was on on the wreck at Tulumban. I was down at about eighteen or so meters, and I'd been photographing. And those things, do you remember? They would rewind by themselves when they got to the end of the roll. Yeah, and would just start rewinding. And I got to the end of the roll, and it started rewinding, and so I'm swimming around because, you know can't take any photos I'm just swinging around and it's rewinding rewinding and after about 10 minutes I noticed it was still rewinding and I'm going what how can it still be rewinding it's it would have got to the end of the roll so I started ascending and and I, I noticed when it rewound I don't know if you remember that you could see it counting backwards on the counter yep and and I looked at the counter and it was still on uh, 36 and I'm ascending and ascending and going up and as soon as I got to my safety stop at five meters which happens to be where it was waterproof to I started seeing that the countdown spool was counting down, as, as in it was rewinding, and then it got to the end and stopped. And I think the body had been so distorted by the depth that the gears weren't meshing and it wasn't rewinding. Right. So that was my first camera, and then after that I purchased a, another yellow one, um, the Motor Marine 2, uh, which was a horrible little camera. All you had was a few f-stops you had to manually predict your focus you couldn't see through the lens so you had to manually sort of set your focus guessing what it was even wow. despite the apparent different magnification underwater uh, and there was no shutter speed um, and um, I remember at the time I think I joined the West Australian Underwater Photographic Society by then and I remember at the time getting a lot of ridicule about that camera because it was just mm. a cheap plastic camera. And I remember it, one of the owners of a large dive um, outlet in Perth at the time laughed at me when I said I'd got it. He was, he was quite a good photographer and said, you'll never get a good photo with that. And so that got my back up. <laughs> <laughs> so I went from shooting film uh, as in as in um, negative film to yeah. to slide film positive film now slide film is the worst to shoot because if you don't get the exposure right you've stuffed the shot because you can't adjust for it in processing unless you adjust the whole roll right um, so what you shot is what you got yeah and you would be lucky if you got if I got two or three keepers out of out of a roll of 36 yeah. but i persevered with that and and then ended up they brought out a new model that actually had shutter speed but it still wasn't much better and it only gave you a an exposure meter that said if you were too dark it didn't say if you were too light so right. you had to adjust it to too dark and then come back one and even as it was uh, its evaluation of too dark and too light was quite arbitrary <laughs> and and um Anyway, to cut a long story short, I won. I I, I met a friend, uh, Peter, and, and at Warps, and he was very creative in setting up the shot underwater. He, mm. he would often do double exposures and, and, and look for interesting things and different ways to shoot. And, and, and it, that got my mind going, a friend of mine, Peter Nicholas. And um, we would often talk about at dinner about 
how to set up shots and, and, and this is all doing things in camera. This is way before Photoshop mm. and, and how to get creative angles and, and, and different sort of things. And we did things like mermaids blowing a stream of bubbles underwater using glass balls suspended on fishing line um, under the bus and jetty. We did things like that to, to um, orb reflections in these same bowls amongst corals of a diver's face. I found, Louise and I used to bushwalk and we found this weir up in the hills where there was a V-shaped water chute where the water just streamed out and, and if you went there at the end of the rains in winter and the dam was very full, the weir was very full, the water was crystal clear. And we, I remember taking this little yellow camera up there mm. to test it out and I just held my hand in the water to to try some shots, just guessing the angle, guessing the composition, guessing the exposure. Uh, no digital feedback straight away to see if you got it wrong. You okay. had to wait till you get home or get it back from processing. Yeah. And I remember my hand was so freaking cold in this water that it was hurting <laughs> while I was doing this. My hand was yeah. actually hurting. Anyway, I took some shots. Oh, this looks really promising. So... We teed it up with our friend Peter and, and managed to find a trail that would get us in there for a four-wheel drive. And we went in with camera equipment, scuba tank, and my little yellow camera. And we had Peter as virtually the safety person. And we had Louise. I'd set up a, a rope that hooked onto one side of the weir wall and then on the other side of the, the weir where the V was, and it came down and attached to her weight belt. We didn't have any weights on her, but just a weight belt. And she wore a wetsuit. And the plan was for Louise to virtually be riding the chute of the weir, mm. uh, almost like a, a bodyboarder or a wood, you know, with mm. the water running just below her chest sort of thing, holding her up. And then she would grab the weir and pull herself down into the water, um, the water course that was coming out and I would be inside the dam shooting up hmm. getting her and this beautiful reflection um, and, and, and she did it and, and she's complained to me ever since that her neck is totally stuffed from this but yeah she pulled herself down we, we got this beautiful reflection Anyway, these are a sequence of shots and, 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 and the orb shot and some shots on the recently sunk HMAS Swan. And we ent I entered the South Pacific Divers Club Underwater Photographer of the Year competition. And, and at its time, it was probably the most prestigious competition in, in um, um, Australia, if not the, the Asia-Pacific region here. Yeah. Um, and... Yeah, I won the novice section of that. And so I quite proudly, at when I received the trophy, and at the same time my friend Peter also won the Open, the professional section. Right. Um, so it was a WA win for both of us. So we both went over. They didn't tell me that I'd won. They just said you've won a prize. They knew I'd won but didn't let me know. So mm. I was gobsmacked when they said I'd won first prize there. And I remember standing up and saying, well, what's going to knock your socks off is I won it with this. I pulled out my little yellow camera. Yeah, and and the the jaws dropped. Um, C and C at the time, uh, who are now big in in underwater photography and digital, 
came up to me and said they wanted to me to, to write stories and things about the camera and I said, oh, what's in it for me? And they said, oh, we'll give you some free film. Right, <laughs> oh, cool. So I said, no, forget it. Right. Go away. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was pretty cool to win that. But that said, straight after that, I went and bought a second-hand full SLR system from yeah. uh, another friend who was selling his very old one at yeah. the time. And uh, that's where I got into the more professional level equipment. Right. And so then it was what you saw is more like what you shot because it was through the lens. You could get your exposure far more accurately. You had different lens choices, wide angle, macro, everything. So that was the start. Yeah. Hmm. And how did you make the decision to go and do this full time professionally? Midlife crisis. <laughs> By that stage, Louise and I had started doing quite a lot of dive travel, mm. whether it be up north or overseas. <clears throat> and uh, I was at the stage where I was thinking, there's got to be more to life than four weeks leave a year, you know. Yes. And by that stage, I, I was working for a building automation company. I was pretty good, reasonably good at my job. Um, I was one of the on-call guys, which was very, very frustrating because I hated being on-call. I hated my time away from work being intruded upon. Mm. And and you knew you were going to get call-outs every time, and they'd often be at 2 o'clock in the morning, that sort of thing. And uh, I was just hating and hating my job even more. And and, and the company was good. They, they knew what I did, and, and by that stage they were giving me leave without pay, and that sort of thing, so I could get extra time off. But I was just fed up. And I'd been entering competitions and things like that at the time, and there were a few glimpses of the more creative shots, the macros, the abstracts, that sort of thing uh, that, that I put out there. And they did reasonably well. And Louise said to me, why don't you have an exhibition of your work? Not Not the stuff you put in travel articles and magazine mm. articles because I started doing dabbling in that yeah but the abstract stuff the, the really interesting stuff and so we I mean finding someone at that time to print in the what they call the giclée process it sounds a bit of a tosser word but the the <laughs> it's a French word for squirt and that's what they call the process where you print onto canvas or paper in very large sizes using pigment inks which are paint instead of dye ink um, at that time it was in its infancy there wasn't many people doing it and I shopped around images I'd already started using digital in a form then because I was scanning images to send them to magazines because I got sick of sending my slides and either not getting them back or getting them back damaged so I'd scan them um, at the time it was a, a good scan of it nowadays you wouldn't even use it to prop a door open it was yeah. horrible so I understood digital a fair bit by then already which was an advantage and I took my some images around the different people at the time who were getting into this large format printing and said don't touch my image just print it I want to see what it's going to look like and they all came back terrible and I was getting things like, oh, yeah, but you haven't adjusted the image right, you know, blah, 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 and all those things. And I ended up walking into a landscape photographer's gallery in um, 
Mount Hawthorne and thinking, oh, look at this gallery. This is awesome. I'd love to have something like this. And I was telling him my dilemma and he said, well, you're not really what I'd class as my competition because taste is so subjective. Yeah. Let me try printing it for you. And I said, all right, well, again, don't touch it. I want to see how it comes out straight away. And it came out perfect. Right. Exactly how I wanted. So what we did then was he printed up, uh, I think it was only two or three for me originally. And we approached anyone and everyone we could think of in the art sort of gallery fraternity to show my work. And I either didn't get replies, or which was most of the time, mm. or I, I got replies saying, no, not interested. And, um, I remember we even travelled down to Albany mm. to what at the time was a very f- well-known gallery down there and the woman that ran it. And we met at a cafe in Albany and started telling her how, about our work, my work. And I pulled out... She started saying, um, oh, look, no, I, it's not really the kind of thing that's going to sell. No one's going to really mm. want to buy that. And I pulled out just a simple anatomy fish shot um, out of a, a box that we had stretched up. And as I'm pulling it out, the girl's behind the counter in the cafe going, oh, my God, look at that. And this woman uh, actually said to us, uh, oh, we'll see some people like it, but still wasn't interested in doing yeah. it. But she sort of said it in a much more bitchy way than that. And I remember Louise was almost in tears because she couldn't believe that, that we were getting this sort of rejection. And I don't know where the catalyst for it came from, but we decided to approach what was then the new Fremantle Museum, um, mm. Maritime Museum, the one that little bit like the Sydney Opera House on yes. the waterfront there. And we approached them, and I remember getting contacted by their um, public relations person there, um, Mike Lafroy, you probably know Mike Lafroy as well, uh, mm. the, the education officer, and Patrick Baker, their underwater archaeology um, photographer. And they got back to me, and we had a meeting, and they said, look, we absolutely love it. Uh, we think it's educational as well mm. as beautiful to look at. We'll give you a two-and-a-half-month exhibition. Well, we'll curate it all. I'm thinking, oh, how awesome is this? Yeah. Uh, didn't know at the time that... or well, didn't think about it at the time that to get into the museum, you have to pay to get in. So it was limiting the amount of people that would see our work because mm. unless you pay to get in, you wouldn't see the exhibition. But we did it, and they... And they did it wonderfully, and they said, look, we, what we want to do is we want to have Patrick shoots in black and white. It's all shots of shipwrecks and things. We'd like to sort of juxtapose that with your beautiful, vivid colour work, uh, have his on one side and yours on the other. So it's sort of two opposites of, of, of photography. And his is much of his is very, very old stuff, um, shot with incredibly handmade gear and all that sort of thing. And so we did that, and... Louise and I, we'd never worked for ourselves. We, we'd always had a job. We'd always had a wage or a salary. Yeah. And I'd never tried to sell things to people ever. And so we didn't. We didn't become salesmen. We just engaged people about 
the stuff. We just talk to them about it. And very early on, within the first few days of the exhibition, we had the, the staff, the guides from the museum, also uh, in there attending. They'd, they'd, they'd rotate about two or three people in there with us at each time. And they said, look, you really need to write something under each print to show what it is. Um, to give it some context, hmm. and and so I'm never afraid of never been afraid of writing, and and so I did. I I, I just put it was either a description of it or my thoughts when I was photographing it, or a bit of both, that sort of thing. Not a technical aspect, but more a, probably an emotional aspect yeah. about the shot. And it was fascinating. Um, people would, I'd watch people, and they'd come in and they'd carefully read it, and then they'd. St- stand back about three or four paces and just look at the print go back and read it maybe have a look again then I'd move on to the next one people were taking an hour to go through the exhibition and and it was amazing that it gave people a connection mm. to the print so that was one of the real positives that came out of that the staff from the museum it was quite wonderful um, so that gave me the catalyst to quit my job in that We sold, oh, I can't remember now. I think we sold something like about 120 prints wow. in that two and a half months, albeit the prices were much, they're probably about half or two thirds of what I sell them for now. Uh, mm. They were still a limited editions. Um, and the reason I'd come home, because she would man it some days and I'd man it others because it was burning you out if you did it all the time. And we'd joke with each other about, well, how many did you sell today? How many yeah. did you sell today? But we weren't actively selling. selling. We were just talking to people and people would sign up and, and buy. We, yeah. we, we were allowing them to buy there. Um, the interesting thing was that the museum then got complaints from art galleries about a government body competing against them in the fact that we were selling hmm. the work there. So the... Sad thing about it was that they then were told that they can't do that again. That they can they can show people's work, but there's absolutely no selling allowed there right. um, by by them or, or or the person having the the exhibition. And I found that kind of ironic, considering none of them even wanted to show my show work. work yeah. So it was fascinating. But that snowballed on to about thirty. Is it 36 or something exhibitions in the next um, five and a half years and even one in Darling Harbour in Sydney and by the time we got to that one we realised that hey museums won't just give you an exhibition they'll actually pay you to have an exhibition because they're constantly looking for exhibitions Mm. they want things to engage the public and, and they normally get them imported from Europe whatever wherever you are and they'll pay people so they paid us to have the exhibition as well as um gave us flights over there to, mm. to be at it, but we weren't allowed to engage the public. It was quite interesting. The only time we could engage the public there was on a certain day or days and provided we were with someone from the museum. We weren't allowed to talk to the public ourselves in case we said the wrong thing. Right. Um, and that wasn't just us. That was just a universal thing they have with... And you're not trained to talk to the public, so you can't do it. Oh, right. 
so uh, that was fascinating but still it was it was quite um, prestigious to have that the fascinating thing with having an exhibition over there over here I couldn't get the media interested in an exhibition uh, it was almost impossible to to get anyone to come mm. and have a look the first exhibition at the Fremantle Maritime Museum we invited all sorts of media to the opening night none came even local newspapers from Fremantle didn't come um, um, mental block where I was so over east if you're not well this is where it made me realise if you're not local you must be interesting Right. If you're local, you can't be interesting. Um, oh, that's sorry. I've gone backwards and forth. Going back to the other exhibition, that's what I was wanted to talk about. We had a guy from the Sunday Times, or might have been the West Australian, uh, the, the, the fold-out magazine, um, was doing an article on how the glass panels at the Maritime Museum were shattering, and it was a safety issue, and he was coming through to photograph them. As he came through, he went past my exhibition and he just looked inside and went, oh, and he came in and started talking to me and said, look, I can't guarantee anything, but this is fantastic. Let me take a few photos. They might want to do a story. Mm. So he did. Next thing they rang me up, they asked me questions over the phone and did a, I think it was a three-page story in the, in the lift out. Mm. And we had people queuing up to get into the exhibition after that. Right. So that was the only media attention I had. Now we go over to Sydney, and I was getting interviewed by radio, I was getting interviewed by newspapers, magazines, everything. Mm. I was not local, therefore I was interested. Interesting, yeah. So it's a fascinating <coughs> thing. It's boy from so, so the only way I got it here was by accident. Mm. Mm. But it was a big bonus. And I think having the... wouldn't necessarily call it the... It wasn't the financial backing, I guess, of the museum, but having the kudos of the backing of a, of a, of a museum, I think, was a huge start for the credibility of my work. And mm. I'll always be thankful for the museum for that, or to the museum for that. Mm. So. so how did you go from that to putting the trigger on your own gallery, which is a beautiful space up near the Roundhouse yeah. West under Fremantle? Yeah, we were. We looked for years, and we would toss around in our heads about different locations. And Louise and I don't do anything without really, really thinking about it. Mm. And, and and we couldn't find a location that we thought it's going to work. You know, there was several. We we almost bit the bullet and went into, and we're so glad we didn't. And then that space that I was in, it used to be. Pretty much, it was a cafe tea room at one stage, and then after that, it became a derelict ruin. No, no businesses really survived there for a huge period of time, and it became quite derelict. And Andrew Carter, uh, the the painter, I, I love Andrew's work. He, I, I got talking to Andrew quite a lot in in Fremantle um, about art and, and 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 selling your work and that sort of thing, and Andrew Carter said to me at one stage, oh, I wish he was in a in a back street next to the uh, my old Meyer building and he said, Oh, I've got this fantastic space that I'm going for, I'm not gonna tell you about it. 
you know, I'll let you know when I get it sorted. And so he'd approached Fremantle Council at the time and said, look, this place is run down. Let me get in there and clean it up and, and you know, I'll do the lease. So they gave him a five plus five commercial lease. And he did it up and it was beautiful. And I'd often, on a, on a weekend, just call in and have a coffee mm. and a chat with Andrew. And then there was the thing called the... Um, <laughs> I don't know if it's Alzheimer's or um, or the fact that I'm, I'm sort of having this conversation, but I'm having mental blanks. Um, what was the big Fremantle biennial photo? Photo Frio. Photo Frio. Oh yeah. Uh, photo Frio used to happen, and I did it a few times, and it was always very, very hard for a local photographer to find a venue because all the venues were always given to people they got in from over east yeah. or overseas. People out of town. Yeah. Um, to, to exhibit. They, they were the, the main, main people that they wanted to promote in the biennial, which we found very frustrating. Uh, again, it was, if you're local, you're not interesting. And I, I did once uh, an exhibition at the, free, uh, the Salt Store in Rottnest Island. Mm. Uh, I just approached them because no one had thought of it and, and do did it as an extension to the photo freer. Uh, so it was really, really hard to get a space. And I was talking to Andrew about it one morning and he said, look, I'll, I'll give you um, a room or two here uh, to have it. And... Um, I thought, well, why not? It's a beautiful space. So he gave me the two front rooms. And that was interesting for both of us in that by that stage, I'd, I'd done so many exhibitions and I, I was getting more and more comfortable to talk to people about my work and, 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 and I guess sell it. Um, and we were on the Photo Frio flyers as, as the also exhibitions mm. and we were getting people coming through and um, Andrew found it interesting that I was selling these small open edition prints because he had never done it he just sells beautiful paintings that are $10,000 $15,000 mm. and and he was looking at those and he's going wow you, you sell a few of those and so we were having a talking about printing and, and all that sort of thing and he came up with his own that he would scan his sketches and sell them and he was selling them for far more than I sell mine for but it, it became his bread and butter and he was quite yeah. fascinated with that and I also noticed a change in Andrew because in, he was a consummate artist he I mean I'm, I'm not great with people uh, he was a consummate artist in that he actually hated talking to people right <laughs> um, he, he couldn't stand people coming in and invading his his space and and and, and people can be quite cruel in, in in their comments not everyone loves your work and that's mm. something and um, he, I noticed in, in how he started engaging people was quite different in, in that he started saying some of the things that I was saying almost verbatim. And, and, and so I sort of thought, well, I'm on, on the right track here with, with how I'm doing because it, it really helped him. Anyway, he told me he was just going to leave. He's, he's done quite well. He's decided he's sick and tired of dealing with the public. Um, he hated the concept of cap in hand dealing with 
art galleries and that sort of thing at the time. Um, and I did as well because of the rejection I had from art galleries. Uh, so he was an independent artist selling his own work and that's what I wanted to be. And so then it became a turnaround for Andrew and that he wanted to go and live down in Denmark um, mm. and have his own studio down there. He's got a beautiful studio down there where he paints and does his work. And he's now uh, sought after through galleries. He's got to the stage where, all right, well, I'm yeah. successful enough that I can deal with their ludicrous commissions and well, that's probably controversial, but um, yeah. um, now go with the galleries. So he said, I'm leaving the space. And I said, well, all right, how about I take it on? And cut a long story short, I ended up taking over his lease. So he, only, he left after only two and a half mm. years of the lease. So that gave us seven and a half years of his lease. And then we renewed that just recently with the council. Mm. So, yeah. so how have you managed the balance between getting out in the water yeah not well taking shots <laughs> new <laughs> creating new work um putting that together and then selling it as your you know uh, uh, as your means to yeah not well uh, as a as a professional and i use italics here underwater photographer i should be in the water all the time photographing mm. it's time in the water because it's not like landscape photography where you can wait till the perfect light perfect conditions and just drive out there and get the photo quite often you're traveling vast distances and you're hoping when you get there that the conditions are going to be good the wildlife's going to be doing what it's supposed to be doing that sort of thing mm. and invariably it's not mm. and so it's very frustrating if you only get to go somewhere for a week or two and then it's almost impossible to get what you want and quite often we'll go on a trip and not get anything that I'll deem as an art print um, so yeah it, it's hard to balance that but it, the business works by keeping it boutique in mm. that we do all our own production we do all our own selling we, we man the gallery ourselves if we were employing staff and paying other people to produce our work then I don't think financially it would be successful that it is now. So we've we've got the mix right. When we first started, I remember Louise looking at the Peter Licks of the world and thinking and saying to me, Oh, we should open multiple galleries, we should, you know, aspire to have a gallery in Las Vegas or wherever. Yeah. Um, employ staff and I just looked at her because my job the technical job that I had before this was very, very stressful. Hmm. And yeah, I just, I just sort of thought, why do I need that stress? And I explained to her that, sure, your overheads go up, your stress level goes up. It becomes something you have to manage. Hmm. Um, it, it would be a nightmare. It's not the path I want. Hmm. It's about lifestyle. It's about enjoying life. Mm. So it's never been for to try and become massively wealthy. It's about balancing a life where we get to go and travel and do what we love. Go diving, yeah. And then to sell our work. But And it's what I say to people that come through the gallery sometimes. I mean, I quite often get people saying, absolutely love your work. You've got the best job in the world. And I say, yeah, but 
80, 90% of the time, I'm actually like everyone else with a day job doing this. It's the other 10% mm. that I'm in the water. Albeit that the day job is my own day job. Yes. And, and, and that I am selling my own work um, in a beautiful setting, that sort of thing. So, mm. and, and I'm my own boss. So that is a huge, huge plus. It, it, it is the best job in the world. But, yeah, you, there's always the component of, of making the living. And, and it had to work for us. It, mm. there was, the choice was it either worked or I went back to being a tradie. Mm. There was no mm. um, middle ground. How so. does um, the fact you now have a gallery and obviously you're trying to sell your pictures... Has that changed ultimately the the pictures that you try and take, or do you still go after the sort of shot that you would have done way back when you had your little weathermatic? My do early... you look at stuff and go, "Oh, that'll sell," or do you look at stuff and go, mm. "Or do you look at stuff and go, that'll that that'll just be a great picture?" Um, I've learnt not to go. That will sell. Mm. I've learnt not to try and come up with a shot that I'll think will be a good seller. I used to let, Louise would often use input going through our images saying, oh no, you've got to bring that one out, that one's going to be a big seller. And we, we joke about it a lot. It's, it's interesting what does sell. And, and I've found that it's this not- This was going to be another question I had for you. Do you find things sell do you take a picture sometimes and go, surely that's going to go, and it doesn't, and yet one that you don't think does. Absolutely, all the time. <laughs> um, some of the simplest shots. Um, but I've learned that if it's got a wow factor, an X factor, and I can't tell you what that is, I just mm. know when I've got it. When I look at it and go, nailed it. Yeah. That's when it generally sells. So if I, I mean, it's proven by the fact that if I, years ago when I first started taking photos, I would um, take a few shots. It's funny now, I see other divers, underwater photographers doing this and I sort of have a bit of a chuckle. They'll, they'll take a few shots and then they're racing on to find the next subject and taking a few shots and then racing on to find it because you're so worried you're going to miss something in your, in your one hour that you get underwater. Mm. Whereas now, if I find a subject, I'll just stay with it and, and until I, I really feel comfortable that I've got the best I can given the situation out of it. And, mm. and it's, never, it's almost never a situation that's perfect. Yeah. So you've got to work with what's there. But the interesting thing, and this is where it comes back to overthinking the image, is that I'd say 90% of the time it's one of the first two shots that I've taken that I use. Right. All the others I've thought about it too much. Right. And when I look at it, I go, nah. Whereas what I do on instinct seems to work. Mm. So it's, it's interesting. Mm. How has... Um how has things like social media and Instagram helped build the brand of Glencar? Um, 
you say, I checked it out, you've got you know, 13,500 followers on there. And the stuff, yeah. obviously, being a photographer, the stuff you do lends itself to something like Instagram. There's <laughs> <laughs> a big sigh there. You're talking to someone that absolutely hates social media and thinks it's, <laughs> thinks it's the evil of the world. Yes. Um, does it drive sales? It does, yes. Uh, as to how much, very hard to quantify. Mm. Whilst we have a huge following on Instagram, I think so. I think Facebook is the main instigator of any sales that come from social media. Hmm. Instagram seems to more be other photographers and, and people that are interested in my work more from the photographic aspect hmm. than a purchasing aspect. Right. Yeah. It's like a fellow professional photographer. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, there's a bit of a joke about social media in that. Um, it's fascinating when you put out a good photo. You'll, you'll quite often get a lot of likes, but it, it's interesting how many people you can see on the reach that view your photo that don't like it. Yeah. You know, it's getting the reach, it's getting out there, but there's a lot of people out there that, yeah. that uh, won't like someone's photo they won't click like and, right. and it's usually it's, it's quite often other other, other um photographers uh, mm. i've talked to a few photographers about this because we actively like other people's photography um you know if, if it's a shot that i think's great we, mm. we won't hesitate in, in, in yeah. putting a nice comment and liking it but um i've talked to quite a few photographers who won't even do that and 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 they'll they'll follow someone until they follow them and then they'll unfollow them because <laughs> all they're trying to do is get you know so, so uh, social media does my head in i can see yeah um so we just treat it as well this is what we do and and mm. hey if we like your stuff we'll, we'll like it yeah um uh, but i wouldn't say it's a huge aspect of of the sales no Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. It. So, as as um, over the last ten years, has it been generally just ticking away at it, ticking it away at it? Social media, yeah. Um, and and the business itself. Oh, the business, yeah, yeah. I mean, who who buys who buys <coughs> your stuff? Have you seen a trend? The demographic, yeah. Uh, Non-divers, um, probably in the age group of. Forty plus, right? Yeah, forty to mm. fifty-five, maybe, mm. maybe thirty-five to fifty-five. Because mm. yeah. a wedding present, I bought my sister your picture of Stingray. Oh, it's okay. Above their bed. Yep, yep, yep. yep. <laughs> Back cool. in England. Yeah, awesome. They like yeah. it. Love it. Cool, cool. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Curious to know. So, where would Glenn have been had he not? Done this, not given up the the technical job. Who knows? Yeah, we often because uh, for us it was a conscious decision not to have children. Yeah, um, we love our lifestyle, um, and there's also all the 
future of the world thing to consider. But um, we often joke that had we not gone down this path, would we have had children? Would we? Where would we be? We we possibly even wouldn't be living where we are. Uh, we'd probably still be in Willerton in in the suburbs um, with three kids and still both of us working and trying to put them through university or that probably would be over by now yeah um or maybe not um yeah but that's uh you can't really yeah you know who knows what does the next uh three to five years look like any goals no i that was i noticed that was one of your uh pre-conversation questions, questions. and yeah. i've always been the kind of person that doesn't really have goals uh, as, as crazy as that may seem I prefer I think I inherited that from my mother I prefer just to be excited to be alive and mm. the business has always been reactive it's not been planned mm. um, we just want to see I guess and do as much as we can and, and enjoy life uh, we do enjoy it's one wonderful aspect and in fact the gallery is in a way become a pseudo-social life because we meet so many people and we have so mm. many conversations during the day that it, 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 it's quite wonderful to keep doing that that said quite often you know we'll get to the end of the weekend and just go <laughs> yeah <laughs> Have a couple of days not talking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, 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 yeah. There you go. Um, what have you learned about yourself on this journey? They say you get your audience in if you have periods of silence. Um, what have I learned about myself? Patience, I think, more than mm. anything. I've, I've developed far more. I used to be very impatient as a child, and I think I've, I've learned a lot more about patience. Probably a lot more about talking to people. I, it wasn't a joke about the does not communicate well with others. Uh, yeah. Uh, and, and, and so it's helped me grow, I think, in, in being able to talk to people. It's not something I relish at, at all. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, 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 it's helped me to definitely communicate. Super. Um, what's Glenn grateful for? My wife, most definitely. We wouldn't be in the life we're in if it wasn't for Louise. Um, Just life in general. Uh, immensely grateful for the start that the Fremantle Maritime Museum gave me. Uh, mm. I'm not trying to do any promotion here or anything, but th that was probably the biggest start I, I could have had. Mm. Um, grateful for the parents that I had and, 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 and the upbringing that I had, the nurturing. Yeah. Mm. If you could go back and give 
Glenn a piece of advice shortly before he decided he was going to give up his electrical career um, from this point in time. What piece of advice would you give him? Knowing yeah, the had? don't sweat the first two or three years because that was a mind game. Um, mind fuck, I call it. Yeah. Because after I left school at 15 immediately in a, into an apprenticeship, Louise was the same. She left school early and went straight into work. We had always earned a wage or a salary and to quit that and not know where your next dollar was going to come in was extremely difficult. Mm, scary. Very scary. Uh, we had, did have the buffer that Louise for quite a few years stayed with her day job. Mm. Um, now she's not, now that we've, we're more established. But uh, I was also working from home during that period of doing all those exhibitions and production and everything. Uh, we converted the biggest room in our house, uh, well, the biggest bedroom in our house into, which was the main bedroom into, it was a little unit, not a house, into a production area and I worked from home. And that was very hard because you never, I felt like I had to overcompensate because I wasn't going to a day job. Yeah. And so I was just- You've been used to it. Yeah, so I was just, and I wasn't earning a, a wage or a salary, and so I was just putting my head into that all the time, and I never got a break from it because I worked from home. And so the second I got up, I was thinking I had Just to push so, myself. Yeah. And, and, and that said, that drive probably helped. Yeah, I was going to ask that. Um, it there was definitely periods of of, of stress at mm. first, yeah, about whether it would be successful. Hmm. And when did you finally think, almost, this is this is going this is going to probably well. Every, we started off the business in the black from the first ex, from the first exhibition at the Maritime Museum. We mm. we developed a, from those sales a nest egg that we rolled over back into the business, and we invariably roll most of the income back into the business, apart from what we used to live um so yeah it was yeah no i've lost it i've lost the thread <laughs> yeah well the original question was what what piece of advice would you give the younger glenn and you were saying how uh, don't sweat don't sweat the first couple of years yeah, I hate questions like this. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I've completely lost my thread. That's all right. Mm. That's all right. What piece of uh, what piece of nugget um, would you give any younger aspiring underwater underwater photographer who's out there listening to this? Thank you. Perseverance. Hmm. Um, quite often, they, they they say one of the biggest failures in, in in exhibiting your work is that the first exhibition will probably go reasonably well because you will have 
um, friends and family supporting you and buying work. And that other exhibitions after that won't. And mm. so I think a lot of people would give up. So you have to persevere beyond that. And I, and I think also a, a large body of work. I mean, by the time I started this, I already had thousands of images on file. So I had a body of work to fall back on. Yeah. And I know the analogy is probably not great, or but I can understand how when, when a, a band or, or, or a singer brings out an album and then the next album they bring out has to be as good as. If it's not, then it's a failure. Mm. And it's the same with a body of work for art. And if you haven't got something to back up the first exhibition with, then you're going to crash and burn. You've got to be continually bringing out new stuff. Now, it's not a huge amount of new stuff, but you've got to continually be bringing out new stuff to... I guess expand hmm. what you're showing to the public. Um, that said, my first exhibition I showed 31 canvases. The next year I brought out another 30. The next year I brought out another 30. The year after that I went, what the hell am I doing? I can't bring out 30 new images every year. Can you imagine um, having to, to, to show and store and hmm display all those images um, so now I bring out maybe half a dozen max a year maybe only two or three hmm. so it's been maybe more fussy too on what I bring out so yeah body of work and perseverance hmm. and love what you're doing superb glad it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you this morning <laughs> <laughs> apart from the moments where my <laughs> mind just suddenly went blank it's alright if anybody wants to come and find you, where can they find you? Uh, we're right next door to the Roundhouse, mm. um, uh, Cap 9 Captain's Lane. So it's the Pilot's Cottage right next door to the Roundhouse. And obviously you're out there on Instagram and Facebook. Instagram, Facebook, we don't do Twitter. We leave that to Trump. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, Glenn, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. And, and um, I've been in your gallery a number of times. Um, it's, it's great to get to meet the person behind the lens. I also thank you because, like you said from the start, you know you are a more quieter, introverted character, <laughs> and so to come and do this, I'm very grateful. Thank you for having me. You'll notice, I guess, that the conversation probably increased in tempo when it wasn't talking about myself. Yeah. But when it's talking about myself, it sort of, uh, yeah, minimises, and I start to think about other things, and then my mind goes blank. And yeah, there you go. Thank you very much. Thank you.